Hello everyone, welcome to this podcast on safeguarding in sport. It's a global effort between Australian and English colleagues. And by way of introduction, my name is Richard Bush. I'm a partner in the International Sports Group at Bird and Bird based in London. I'm joined today by my colleague, Tom Macken, who is a senior associate in our Sydney office. And we're both very pleased to welcome international safeguarding expert, Phil Dorgachern. And I'll let both of those introduce themselves in a bit more detail in a few seconds. But why are we here today? Well, we're here today to discuss safeguarding in sport, and we'd like to cover just what we mean by safeguarding in sport, what the aims of sports governing bodies should be, and then the real purpose of today is to have a discussion about the approaches in both the UK and Australia, what are the similarities, and perhaps what can we learn from one another. So that's what we hope to discuss today. Tom and Phil, if I perhaps turn to you just in that order to briefly introduce yourselves and then we'll start the discussion. Thanks Richard. Yes, I'm a senior associate here in uh, Bird and Bird's media entertainment and sports team in Sydney and as a person that absolutely loved playing sport growing up, child safeguarding is something that's close to my heart from a professional and personal point of view so it's great to be here with you guys today. Thanks, Rich, and thanks, Tom. Same to you, Tom, former athlete and used to run track. Less so now, I'd probably say, about running. But my background is working as a head of safeguarding for Arsenal Football Club, British Tennis, and did some work with the London 2012 Games and most recently working with the International Olympic Committee. So a bit of experience, and now I currently head up the safeguarding for the YMCA of Australia. So hopefully I can bring you guys some, some experiences from me. Welcome both. Whilst this is obviously a podcast that's being hosted by Bird and Bird, we will try and seek here to offer some legal insight, but perhaps more importantly, some practical insight here. Because one thing I'm often at pains to say when speaking about safeguarding, in particular in the legal context, is the practice is perhaps far more important or is more important than what policies and regulations say. So in particular, Phil, hopefully we'll be able to add to our discussion there. So the first thing, I know this will seem perhaps a bit noddy, a bit easy for some people, but you know, it's important to frame discussions about what we actually mean by safeguarding in sport. And I think there's various degrees that we can look at it. There's a narrow way, which is simply protecting participants in sport from risk of harm presented by others. There's a slightly wider scope, which is its kind of classic definition, which is all activities that support the well-being of children or other participants generally. And then perhaps widely, does it mean more to some people? There's a lot of discussion in safeguarding in sport, particularly from a rights perspective about what remedy means and what can sport deliver for victims of abuse. Phil, what do you consider safeguarding to be and what should it mean? So particularly, I quite like the IOC have come up with a new definition, which is breaking down safe and guarding. Safe, particularly looking at keeping people or participants safe from abuse, exploitation or harm, like you said, Rich, and then guarding, using about guarding their rights. And I, I think... As time's gone on in the safeguarding space, we've looked into more around the potential of protecting the rights of participants. And that's not just about prevention from harm or being physical, sexual, emotional or neglect. So I actually like that broader aspect. I think the challenge with some of this definition is actually where does it start safeguarding as a where does it stop? And I know here in Australia, we use the term child safety. So trying to find a universal definition may be a challenge. I'm more on that actually prevention of harm and ensuring the rights of children, young people and participants in sport. Yeah, maybe another point to add there is just making sure that everyone within an organisation is aware of their rights from a, a safeguarding point of view. And I know under the Australian sort of legal framework, it, we sort of a, have a framework in place which, which seeks to allocate responsibility for child safeguarding across all people involved within an organisation. 
So I think it, it's understanding the roles and responsibilities that each person within an organisation, including boarding organisations, have with respect to um, promoting child safeguarding from an organisational point of view. So today we're obviously focusing on the national approaches of two countries, the UK and Australia. And speaking broadly, I imagine those two countries will have a lot of cultural similarities. Not every society will have the same cultural and social norms. I would like to think that internationally we can all agree on what abuse looks like, perhaps. But to what extent can there appropriately be national differences in safeguarding practice on a country to country basis? Maybe perhaps, Phil, I'd be interested in your views on that question. Yeah, great question, Rich. The challenge is, like you say, is we can agree on a national approach or an international approach around what abuse looks like. But as you start to consider cultural norms and cultural sensitivities across nations and across regions, even within Australia, there'll be differences in the UK about what's culturally different and acceptable and what's not. The challenge is as you start to work across not just the grassroots, but all the way through to the elite level of the sport is starting to think around if there's low level poor practice about what's acceptable. So we know that particularly in the Western world, picking a your coach driving athlete to the gym alone or staying in a hotel with them is not seen as acceptable. However, in other parts of the world, this is actually seen as acceptable because again, around what's culturally normalized as such and how maybe a Western lens or maybe inflicted on terms of, of this. So what that really puts on is there's always going to be a challenge around how we operate as organizations and international, the international spectrum, because what we or what I personally may believe is actually on a low level poor practice, not acceptable may seem different to people from different cultures or different backgrounds or different nationalities. And that's when it comes into the rules of a sport of how do you actually educate people and make people aware so that as we see at World Cups and as we see at international competitions, somebody does something and actually is, there's potential for a disciplinary around it. However, in their own country, they would say that's totally acceptable or in their own culture. So we need to start to work on that lower level poor practice to get some sort of agreement around what's acceptable in sport and what's not. Yeah, another point. In Australia, we had a, a significant initiative here at the um, Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse. And the commission explored, as part of their review of child sexual abuse that had occurred in institutional context, they looked into a lot of the practices and habits that had been sort of exercised on a local basis here in Australia and looked at what was acceptable and what wasn't. And a lot of their findings from that commission have formed part of the regulatory framework here in Australia, which we'll come to discuss. But it was interesting that they did look specifically at things like what was appropriate in the context of sort of physical touch in Australia and use of language and tone of voice. So things that might be acceptable in one country might not be acceptable here. And the Royal Commission really cast quite a, a close eye over these sorts of things. And I think on the point between national differences, I was fortunate enough recently to attend a conference at which Phil was speaking. It was hosted by British Gymnastics and the International Gymnastics Federation. And it was interesting there to see that national associations are at very different stages of development. And also a point here, I think, from an international perspective is each sport is at its own stage of development as well. So if you look at safeguarding from an international perspective, it's very challenging because you've got you know X number of sports in X number of countries, so you're having to, in effect, repeat developing safeguarding practices, procedures, etc., across hundreds of organisations around the world. So one thing I think that the UK, and subject to what you guys say, Australia as well, should probably be quite proud of, is actually, in a relative sense, very sophisticated, very developed, again, taking a broad level, quite developed approach to safeguarding in sport. 
and we'll come on to how that's happened over the course of this podcast. So I think the next thing that would be useful to discuss just by way of background context is what we think sports governing bodies in particular, national and international, should be looking to achieve when developing those safeguarding policies and procedures, etc. So perhaps, Phil, if you've got kind of the practical insight there, firstly... Thanks, Rich. For me, as a sports organisation, whether you're a club or up to a national governing body level or even international, there's kind of three elements where I've worked on and we've installed in organisations around key things you need to probably look for is around the first one is creating a safe culture within your sport. The second one is creating safe operations, which is those practical things you do, which I'll talk to a little bit in shortly. And then finally, making a safe environment. So if you kind of see them as your three core pillars around creating a safe sport keeps the athlete at the center and participants at the center of that you've got a safe culture operations and environment and the way I break down culture is and as it's kind of a word which is banned around a lot how do you define that is thinking about having the best leadership so having your board talk about safeguarding and making sure your CEO and your president or chair of your board is really sorry, talk to it as an issue and keep it on the agenda because the passion from their side is, is, is just one element having effective governance strategies within your sport when that's through policies, procedures, but also disciplinary guidelines. Empowering, one thing which I think is quite weak in sport is really around how do we empower athletes and we're seeing more athletes commissions being set up, but particularly in gymnastics across the world. And I know Simone Biles um, talking about stepping down and a number of other, um, Ash Barty and others who are sort of saying in tennis in Australia, people have not maybe experienced, some have experienced through some less so, but actually being empowered to exercise their own rights as a human being rather than what's required in a sport other areas i think in culture is making sure you've got people who have got the right values and behaviors who work for you providing great training like tom really just talked about what safe touch is teaching people about how do you actually effectively touch safely and what's okay and then this continuous improvement cycle i see within the cultural aspects within operations i think you need to get the right people i think that sometimes we've left sports been allowed to keep people in because they've been in sport for a long time and actually the behavior hasn't been okay but it's been you wouldn't see that in other settings but for some reason in sport we're allowed to continue with those types of people who maybe maybe need to exit but also some of the great people who need to stay and demonstrate the real positive behavior other things in operations getting the right policies in place getting the right procedures which you've talked to rich and then having a real robust complaints mechanism of how do you make complaints and how do kids and people as young as five all the way up to 95 be able to make complaints in a safe manner and then finally how do you create a great environment so we know that sport doesn't just take place on the pitch or court or pool we know that it takes place online now as well we know even with the advent of e-gaming etc so what's coming up on that e-sports how are we creating the online environment to be safe and how are we involving diverse communities um, including people from different backgrounds, cultural heritages to be involved. So they're kind of my elements around creating cultures, operation environments. And I think if you nail those elements within that, you're working your way towards creating a really safe sport for all people. I certainly agree with all those things. And from a culture environment perspective, there's always one quote that I won't remember it exactly now, but it was actually from a charity commission review of Oxfam. And it was the effect of bad things can happen under the watch of otherwise good people. So it's kind of getting messages to the boards in particular of national governing bodies. And I think certainly in the UK, it's it's landed about the importance of creating positive safeguarding culture, because, you know, that of itself should be something you are seeking to achieve. So that's the carrot. But the other end is obviously the stick. And there's a whole litany of sports in the UK that have sadly had negative experiences of safeguarding. And obviously the participants in sport have had those negative experiences. 
I've already made the point at the beginning of the podcast that the practice is more important than what the rules and policies actually say. But obviously, you do have to have those rules and policies. And I think the key things that I would kind of emphasize in my approach, at least to producing those, is they've obviously got to be clear. The main things that they've got to address are one, receiving reports of abuse, as well as kind of below that as well, poor practice, but receiving reports of abuse and then responding to them. So sports governing bodies got to do two things mainly. One is if a complaint that it receives is of an appropriate level of seriousness, it's got to know where it can take that elsewhere. So does it need to go to the police? Does it need to go to the local authorities? And then there's the separate question of what does it do within the sporting context itself? So has a complaint been made against a participant that suggests they're a risk of harm to others? If so, how will your policies and procedures respond to that? And then you've also got to make sure that those policies and procedures are regularly maintained, kept up to date, fit for purpose, as I said, working in practice. And I think one main thing that sports governing bodies can actually do is no matter what their rules and policies actually say in terms of level of detail, is making sure that for participants, it's very easy to digest and understand and therefore know what to do. So you could have a, you know, for good reason, a relatively lengthy set of regulations about safeguarding. But when you go onto the sports governing bodies website, you'll want just the A4 explanation of what people need to do and what the consequences might be. That's obviously a very high level. And Tom, I don't know whether you have anything to add from that, maybe from the legal perspective. Yeah, I think a point from an Australian point of view, the Board Integrity Australia, which is Australia's key integrity agency, which has been set up and recently to help sports deal with these integrity threats, now produces a safeguarding policy that complies with the relevant legal requirements, which have been largely informed by the recommendations of the Royal Commission, and in particular, these 10 national child safe principles Sports can actually just adopt that safeguarding policy as part of their adoption of the national integrity framework more broadly, which makes it really easy for national sporting organisations here in Australia to ensure they are complying with child safeguarding laws and requirements. There is the difficulty with the practical application of those, but the implementation of the, the policy itself and the adoption of it has been made quite simple from that point of view for sporting organisations here in Australia. And because it's such a good quote, and I wanted to stick with people, I found the Charity Commission quote that I was talking about, and it says as follows. Injustices are not the exclusive preserve of the unjust. They can be presided over by people who are, in all other respects, well-meaning and decent. Being on the side of good is also no guarantee against leaders focusing on the wrong issues, prioritising the wrong things, or missing opportunities to put matters right. Sound processes and systems are crucial to prevent this, but still more important are the people, the attitude and behaviours they display and the culture they promote. As I say, that wasn't actually in a sporting context, but for me, it summarises exactly the importance of safeguarding and exactly the importance of leadership, getting it right and putting it on top of the agenda. So I think we've reached the point in the podcast where it'd be helpful to discuss the approaches adopted in the UK and Australia And before we do that, I just wanted to give some historical context to the position in the UK, and then perhaps we can discuss the historical context in Australia. So in the UK, and I'll I'll try and keep this brief, because obviously it's got a huge history. Safeguarding in sport has always been an issue, just obviously an issue that's rightly taken its place with increased prominence in sport over the last few years, the last decade or so. But the first real cases of safeguarding in sport that kind of grabbed a high level of attention arose in the mid-90s. There was a case of Paul Hickson, in swimming in mid-90s and abuser, and there were also reports of abuse in football at that time as well. 
and those led to the establishment of the Child Protection in Sport Unit, the NSP Child Protection in Sport Unit, that started to develop policies and procedures that governing bodies could put in place, which they have done over time. And now, in, in effect, that's the, the Child Protection in Sport Unit is a centralised resource that promulgates things such as policies and procedures that sports in the UK will adopt. And for publicly funded sports, their public funding will rely on them doing so effectively. That's a very high level history of the UK general background. So I don't know if there's an equivalent story that can be told, again, as briefly as possible in, in Australia. The biggest development here in Australia has been the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, which the Australian government commenced in 2013, and it went for almost five years. And Royal Commissions in this country typically don't last for more than a year or two. So it was extremely high profile and comprehensive in terms of its scope and reach. And it examined child abuse that had occurred in a range of institutional contexts, but that included sporting and recreation institutions. And in that area alone, there were over 400 survivors that provided testimony relating to the abuse that they had experienced and that it related to over 340 institutions within the sports and recreation space. And so what the Commission found was that there had been a a range of significant failings by these sporting and recreation institutions, which included things like you know, the grooming of young athletes, the overtraining of young athletes, all for the sort of aim of achieving better performance outcomes uh, underpinned by this, this idea of winning at all costs, which people who have been involved with sport are likely to be familiar with. The Commission also identified that the sports had failed to have in place appropriate and suitable child protection policies and the victims just weren't aware of their, their rights with respect to child abuse and, and safeguarding. And, and so there was a lack of understanding within the organisation in and around that. And what ultimately happened was that the Commission handed down a, well, made a number of recommendations over 400, but one of which, probably the, one of the most important ones, was the development of these 10 national child safe principles, which included things like embedding child safety and well-being in organisational leadership and culture, making sure that families and communities were informed and involved in protecting child safety and well-being and making sure that these organisations had processes in place to respond to complaints and making sure that they were child-focused. And so those 10 principles really do form the, the bedrock of Australia's child safeguarding landscape in many respects now. And just to jump in on that, Tom, and I really agree with you, is the points I made with the culture operations and environment a little bit earlier in the podcast aligned to those 10 national principles. And just from personal experience, I really do believe that's actually a really progressive method, which Australia has in place. And I really implore organisations even across the world to look at those those reports, but also those standards because they're all principles because they're really, really key, I suppose, around how you make a culturally safe organisation in sport. They've been progressive for me, but they've also made it really easy when I've used them locally of swim coaches all the way to sort of local Sunday league footy coaches. They get it because some of them are really simple. So it's actually really what's great with them is they're really simple and, and quite tangible and easy to understand, which is a great way to make sport safer. I mean, in the UK, again, talking about kind of reviews in the past, there's now a very significant number of those reviews in a sporting context as well as outside. I mean, in a sporting context, the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse had a publication on sport and then we've got the kind of sport by sport review so the likes of the Sheldon review in football the Quinlan review in tennis the white review in gymnastics and, and the list goes on and I'm sure it will continue to go on sadly but I think there's 
a few themes that can be derived from all of those reports, as well as those outside of the UK, that they seem to include that risk in sport is heightened, particularly at the elite level, and that's obviously because of the player pathway and things like the close relationship between athlete and coach and the desire to succeed and the perception that reporting abuse might get in the way of that ability to succeed. A failure to deal properly with senior and powerful individuals, tolerating poor practice in sports organisations and not acting quickly enough on early warning signs, flawed internal responses to safeguarding concerns and failing to report safeguarding concerns externally. And that fifth one is a good point to pick up, I think, where sports governing bodies have a role to play in the wider safeguarding system in the UK. So the UK obviously has a child protection and care system. The main act that underpins that is the Children Act 1989, and that established some key principles, including that the welfare of the child is the paramount consideration. Children should be safe and protected by effective intervention if they are at risk of significant harm, and the agencies working with children should cooperate and work together in the best interests of the child. Now, there isn't any legislation that really deals specifically with sports governing bodies in a safeguarding context. Perhaps the only exception to that is the Data Protection Act 2018 that allows the sharing of information for safeguarding purposes, but even then I don't think that's specifically in a sports context, but nonetheless it is a very helpful piece of legislation for sports governing bodies in the UK. But the main thing sports governing bodies need to know in the UK is how to interact with external agencies and the the child protection and care systems that are in place for both children and adults and then that will obviously allow the local authorities to take the steps that they need to protect children in their local areas and obviously the police in cases of emergency and then other things that sports governing bodies can do to prevent risk is to make full use of disclosure and barring service checks to make sure that those working closely with children and adults at risk where appropriate there's no known risk in relation to their ability to do so so those are the main ways in which sports governing bodies can engage with and make use of relevant UK legislation and I'd be interested to know if the position differs in Australia in terms of where sports governing bodies sit in the wider legislative framework dealing with children and adults at risk. Yeah sure so those 10 national principles that I referred to have now been in a number of jurisdictions at least codified into legislative form so sporting organisations are required to comply with those as a matter of of law and then also or usually as a matter of policy as well and I mentioned that one of the principles is making sure that the, the organisations have in place processes to effectively deal with and respond to complaints and uh, the way they typically demonstrate it um, is by um, making sure that their processes, systems and procedures are all sort of designed in a way which, which achieve or, or promote the achievement of these national principles and so will often have is a, a policy that might set out the process for reporting these instances of child abuse or, or misconduct to the authorities. But as well as that, in Australia, alongside the child safe principles, we have mandatory reporting requirements, which can actually capture other adults uh, that might be involved in an organisation that become aware or, or reasonably ought to know that a child abuse offence has, has been committed. So as well as the sporting organisation itself having to have reporting processes and procedures in place. The framework here actually captures other individuals that are involved within an organisation and subjects them to mandatory reporting obligations as well. So if, for example, a 
volunteered, became aware of a, a likely instance of child sexual abuse, they would be required to report that to the authority under, under law or as a matter of legal requirement here. From the perspective of sports governing bodies actually dealing with concerns within sport, in the UK and internationally, there is no set way of approaching the regulation of safeguarding in sport. So each sport effectively has to work out the best way that it can address it. So for example, if you take the position whereby a report of abuse is received in relation to a participant, one sports governing body might deal with that by just issuing an outright ban and letting the participant challenge that ban, effectively showing that it was unreasonable, disproportionate, irrational, or a similar test. Other governing bodies might take the approach of adopting a more a, a process that's more disciplinary in nature, so issuing whichever terminology it uses, but something akin to a notice of charge, letting the respondent respond to that, addressing the facts that would typically say that that person presents a risk of harm, and then a panel coming to a decision thereafter. And there are a lot of ways in which that can be structured, and there are a lot of considerations that go into it. For example, how does one ensure that those who might have suffered from abuse aren't traumatised by the process? How can respondents be, at the same time, treated fairly? What resources are available to the sports governing body? What skill sets does it have internally? What skill sets might it panel members have? What experience might its case management panels have? And so on and so forth. And that's obviously can be quite a complex exercise for each individual sport to deal with by itself. But there are a lot of resources available to sports governing bodies in the UK, in particular sports resolutions, has a lot of material available to help sports governing bodies do that. I've already talked about the Child Protection in Sport Unit and the resources that it makes available to sports governing bodies. But in essence, in the UK, it really ultimately, at least in theory, whilst most governing bodies will make use of those resources, it is up to each sport as to how it approaches safeguarding within its, within its own jurisdiction. How is the position in Australia? Is it similar? Yeah, so one of the, the benefits of, of adopting the, the national integrity framework here in Australia is that uh, Sport Integrity Australia will typically deal with complaints relating to child safeguarding and child abuse other than those that are being investigated by the law enforcement authorities. So the organisations that are signed up to the National Integrity Framework can actually refer or have those complaints considered and dealt with by Sport Integrity Australia whereas the organisations that haven't yet signed up to the National Integrity Framework will typically deal with them themselves. And I think a lot of the challenges that you've described apply in an Australian context as well, which is why a lot of organisations do opt to utilise the Sporting Integrity Australia complaints resolution channel rather than try to deal with and manage them themselves. In that context, the level of information sharing between sports, so if Sports Integrity Australia acts as a central hub, do you know, if, is there a way whereby information can be exchanged between sport in respect of, for example, participants who might present a risk of harm to ensure that they don't go from one sport to another? It's often a challenge in the safeguarding context in the UK. So for good reason, or certainly for some good reasons, decisions in respect of safeguarding aren't necessarily published. And as I say, there'll be good reasons for that, because you wouldn't want to identify victims, for example. Decisions will be shared confidentially just because it is not published on a website doesn't mean that there isn't some level of information sharing. But a difficulty with safeguarding decisions that you don't get with anti-doping, that you don't necessarily get with anti-corruption is there's not a huge pool of decisions that allow you to see how a governing body might or how safeguarding panels might approach issues and what appropriate risk management measures are. And I just wonder if the position is any different in Australia in that respect. 
think the challenges are the same here in Australia. There's certainly information sharing between the, the, the relevant agencies, but, but as between sporting bodies, I think it's, it's similar here. Yeah, correct. It's the challenge we've got is the Privacy Act. Sadly, probably puts a bit too much onus on the privacy of the person. And we see this in the UK as well. And I think that's something I know organisations are campaigning for is having a more centralised system where the coaches and officials are able to be known if you're barred. So something I know in the US, Safe Centre for Sport actually lists all the barred coaching and officials, which is something I do think across the world is a is a potential, a good way so parents know who can set up clubs. Because as you know, you can set up a, a you don't always have to be affiliated with a governing body as we've as I've worked with, that people might set up a club as a person and that can also pose a, a risk to children. So having sometimes that, that central database as such would be really helpful for parents. But again, comes with some of those human rights issues and legal issues around around naming people who've been barred. Yeah. And for example, disclosure and barring service information is subject to statutory protection at a level. It's a criminal offence to ask for offending information that you're not entitled to. So it does come with a lot of difficulties, but as, as you say, Phil, I think there is moves towards campaigning for a bit more openness and transparency. And from a lawyer's perspective, it would certainly be helpful to see those precedents, not only separate from identifying people and making sure that people who are known risk can be identified publicly, but also from just ensuring consistency in respect of how sport is approaching these issues. One thing that interests me and that I've seen in Australia, it's more actually, in fairness, not necessarily an Australian piece of law but it's a way in which a an Australian governing body or event organizer has taken an approach to a safeguarding issue which is the National Rugby League's no fault stand down rule now Tom I think you'll probably be able to explain this better than I can but my broad understanding of it is that if an NRL player or perhaps a wider participant is accused of a sufficiently serious criminal offence then they will automatically be suspended from participation but perhaps you can explain that in a bit more detail yeah, that's right. So the background to this was the National Rugby League here in Australia had a in the off-season a spate of alleged sexual assault cases affecting a number of rugby league players. And so the NRL had to devise a mechanism to sort of manage these, these issues. And the challenge they faced was protecting the reputation of the game, but also ensuring that these players were entitled to the presumption of innocence before the law. And so what they came up with was the, the no-fault stand-down rule, which means that if a player is charged with a, a serious indictable offence, which is generally speaking one that is quite serious, so sexual assault cases reach that threshold, they're automatically stood down, which means that they can't play. They remain on their pay, so they don't lose that, but they're stood down from playing and training duties until the determination of the case. So it was originally designed, I think, to deal with those sorts of cases, but theoretically it could certainly apply to a, a child abuse case or claim. So if a player was alleged to have engaged in conduct of the sort and it did reach the threshold of a serious indictable offence, they would likely be dealt with under the, the no-fault stand-down rule. And it did go before the Australian courts. There was sort of an argument by the player, Jack DeBellin, that it was an unreasonable restraint of trade, but the court ultimately said that the NRL was within its rights to impose this rule because it, it had significant commercial interests in protecting its reputation and by allowing these players to play it risked significant commercial damage so the rule itself has been upheld in court so it might be a rule that other sporting organizations around the world could consider adopting as a possible way to deal with child abuse allegations that affect their players so was the predominant purpose or intent of the nrl to protect its own reputation or did it have a what might be called a more straight down the line safeguarding aim which was to protect other participants in the nrl from a risk of harm 
think both of those things are legitimate, but I'd be interested to know the extent to which it was a safeguarding measure and the extent to which it was a kind of reputational measure. Yeah, I think a lot of the evidence they provided in court did relate to the protection of its reputation, but I certainly agree that protection from a safeguarding point of view would be another interest that you could raise in a court to argue that it's a rule that's reasonably necessary to protect your legitimate interests. And I, mean, I think in fairness, even if its aims were predominantly reputational, there are aspects of it that can be taken and made into a safeguarding approach for other governing bodies elsewhere around the world. And one other thing I want to touch on is mandatory reporting laws in Australia. There are mandatory reporting laws in the UK, but they're very narrow, relating in particular to female genital mutilation. That isn't obviously sport specific. But I understand there are mandatory reporting laws in Australia, and I'd be interested in hearing more about those and whilst they might not be sport specific, how they interact with sports organisations or how sports organisations might be affected by them. Yeah, so in Australia, we've got, it varies across the jurisdictions, I should say. So the laws in New South Wales might not be the same as the laws in Queensland, but at least in New South Wales, we've got mandatory reporting laws, which deal with, there's a set of mandatory reporting laws which apply to people in certain professions. So healthcare workers, teachers, nurses, doctors, if they suspect that a child is at risk of significant harm, they're required to report that to the relevant authorities and to not do so is actually a criminal offence. And it was interesting in the Royal Commission that they actually recommended that that mandatory reporting obligation be extended to people uh, within sporting organisations. And, and that hasn't yet happened. But alongside that, we have other mandatory reporting oblig- obligations which apply to the population at large. So any other adult, which would include any other adult within a sporting organisation, is required to report if they suspect on reasonable grounds an allegation or they suspect that a child's been a subject to a, some sort of child abuse and they're required to report that to the authorities and to not do so is also a, a criminal offence with the potential term of imprisonment penalty. Yeah, and, and just to build on that as well, I know in Victoria and a few of the other states, um, there's a reportable conduct, which I think is a really great scheme. There's some challenges with that as well, but that effectively means that if a coach, for example, or an official behaves in a particular way and there's particular thresholds, so it might be around sexual or physical or emotional abuse, you need to make a report within 48 hours or 24 to 48 hours, depending on the jurisdiction, to the relevant body. And it's usually the Children's Commissioner. So each state over here has a Children's Commissioner's office or equivalent. And what that means is if there's a a conduct which might be seen as unprofessional or crosses across boundaries, that's reported to this central office. And a purpose for that is actually to notify some of the work of children check units to identify if this person may be working in other settings. So maybe you're a coach in tennis, for example, but you're doing some gymnastics coaching. The potential good part of this is that the reportable conduct scheme will identify those behaviours and may stand you to help you to be stood down from other roles whilst the investigation takes place. Or even if then you're actually barred, they can actually work around where you're working. So probably a really good scheme there, Rich, around how reportable conduct could potentially be used in the UK to make sure that behaviours aren't just left to manage at a club or governing body level that are actually reported through statutory agencies. And it's interesting in the UK that I mentioned earlier the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. One of its key recommendations was that a mandatory reporting law be introduced in England and Wales for certain individuals. And that's obviously one challenge with any law of this nature is working out who it should cover, you know, what level of knowledge is required, and so on and so forth. And there's a similar question in a mandatory reporting context where sports governing bodies might wish to introduce a mandatory reporting and rule into its own rules and regulations, even if it's not a matter of national legislation. But that 
as I've just touched on, raises a lot of issues that unfortunately we don't have time to discuss in this podcast. But I'm very keen to thank both you, Tom, and in particular you, Phil, for joining us on this podcast. Hopefully for listeners, it's contained some useful content. Do you have any final words you would like to leave listeners with, equivalent of final thoughts? No, just thank you to you both. I think there's like that key part, like you say, it's around sports sits within that wider ecosystem. And for me, is really around, like we talked about, yes, you've got to build culture operations and environment, but particularly, like you say, is around having those rules. And I know we talk about policies and procedures might not be the most exciting thing but actually they they for me personally particularly in sport help us a really good background so if you haven't got your disciplinary processes if you haven't got your procedures set actually when it comes to some of those really challenging pieces you can't get rid of people or you can't actually follow process which give victims and survivors the really due process which they deserve so i really implore for people to to make sure that those disciplinary procedures really are tight so that you can actually act in a way which puts the victim or survivor at the centre of the work. And that's where I think, again, the roles that you both do within the the legal space is really important. That takes a central part within sport as well. Yeah, just to flag in an Australian context that child safeguarding really is everyone's responsibility within the organisation. It's not just management, not just volunteers, not just employees. It really is everyone's. And so I think that's an important point for anyone that is involved in a sporting organisation here in Australia to just uh, be aware of. So thank you, guys. Well, thank you very much both again for joining us. And as I say to the listeners, hopefully that was very helpful and insightful for you. And I wish you the best for the rest of your day whenever you're listening to this. Thank you very much.